Hey there, I'm so pumped to tell you about an amazing new community I've launched called Grief to Growth Circle Community. It's a space for people who are grieving to come together to support each other and for people who want to know who we are, why we're here, where we're going to have those conversations, all the things we talk about on the podcast. So I invite you to join me at grieftogrowth.com slash community to become part of this compassionate crew. The best part is 100% free. And you have access to me in addition to everybody else in the community. In fact, the podcast will be there so you can talk about the things we talk about in the podcast right there in the community. There's also some premium content if you want to go deeper in the work I'm doing, but mostly it's about building relationships and community and about sharing resources and supporting each other. So come on over and check it out. It's grieftogrowth.com slash community. I'll see you inside. Hi there. Welcome to the Grief to Growth podcast. Your host is Brian Smith, spiritual seeker, grief survivor, and life coach. Brian believes that the worst tragedies of life provide the greatest opportunity for growth. Brian says he was planted, not buried, and he's here to help you grow where you've been planted. In each episode, Brian and his guests will share what has helped them to survive and thrive. His sincere hope is that this episode helps you today. And now, a brief word from our sponsor. When I decided I was going to do a podcast, I knew there were more moving parts than most people expect. How do you record a podcast? Where do you host it? How much will it cost? Do I need special software? How do I distribute it? All these questions were in my mind. I was all set to go with another podcast hosting company. Then I heard about Anchor. I believe that Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place. You can use it right from your phone or from your computer. Anchor is not only free, you can even make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Anchor's creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll even distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. So download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M as in FM radio. And now, back to our episode. As a quick introduction to this episode, I want to say that it was a true honor sitting down with Reverend Bill McDonald to discuss uh, his fascinating life and his work. This episode goes on for about an hour and a half, so I know it's longer than our normal episode if you need to break it down and listen to it in chunks, I would suggest you do that. But uh, it's worth listening to to the end. There's a story at the very end about a reading he had called a Nadi Palm Reading, which I had never heard of before, but was truly amazing. So again, if you need to break it up into chunks, that's great. But I would suggest you listen to the whole episode to the very end if you can. Thanks a lot. Hope you enjoyed as much as I did. All right. Hey, everybody, this is Brian Smith with your host of Grief to Growth, and I am here today with Reverend Bill McDonald, uh, known as Reverend Bill. Reverend Bill is a fascinating man who I met a couple of weeks ago, and I am honored to have him join us today. I am going to read some of his bio. Uh, to read his entire bio would take, the, would take an hour, but I'm going to just hit the highlights. Uh, he's an author. He's an award-winning poet, an international motivational speaker, an artist, a film advisor, a veterans advocate, a Vietnam War veteran, 
Uh, he won the Distinguished Flying Cross. He's got the Bronze Star, the Purple Heart Medal, 14 Air Medals, and the Vietnamese Cross of Gallantry. Uh, Reverend Bell has spoken around the world, including in Germany, England, Wales, Bolivia, and India. He's been involved with a dozen films and documentaries, such as In the Shadow of the Blade, shown on the History Network, and Art of Healing, shown on PBS TV. Reverend Bill has been in over 800 radio and TV shows over the last 18 years and has stories about his life featured in over a dozen books by other authors and in hundreds of magazine and newspaper articles. He's had articles in such diverse publications as Parade Sunday Magazine and the Self-Realization Fellowship Magazine, as well as military magazines and New Age magazines. He works as a volunteer chaplain and on the National Suicide Hotline. His YouTube channel has over 70 videos and has got, had gotten over 550,000 views in the first 18 months after it was posted. And as I said, those are just the highlights, but I'm, with that, I'm going to stop and say welcome, Reverend Bill. Well, good morning from the uh, West Coast. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, uh, I really appreciate you doing this. Um, I know you're, you're really, really busy. I know you just got back from the IONS conference in, um, in Pittsburgh, Philadelphia. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we're recording this early September, actually September 11th, uh, 2019. So I um, appreciate you doing this. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's my honor to be talking to you again. We've had this conversation before, so we're kind of, uh, kind of going down some familiar roads. And uh, I, I was talking to somebody the other day about uh, one of my friends who passed away, my best friend in high school, a guy named Bob Amick, and sent you with this afterlife group, you know, and connections and all that. I thought that's was kind of apropos to kind of talk about that because this is one of those cases where I had a good relationship with somebody for 50 years and we call and talk for an hour or so every day on the phone about spiritual, physical matters, all kinds of stuff. And he talked to me about stuff he didn't talk to anybody else about. He'd gone through a heart attack, series of them. I'd gone through a series of heart attacks, and we were always, we always kind of knew that was in the background. And someday, you know, one of us was going to be gone. And I remember when the last time I, I talked to him on the phone, and he, he's calling me on his way to work, and, and he's telling me that, uh, you know, Bill, if, if I die tomorrow, I'm happy. If I die an hour from now, I'm happy. I got beautiful children. I got a beautiful wife. I've, I've done what I've come to do, and, and I have no regrets. So that was the kind of guy he was. So a few years back, actually 10 years ago, I'm driving down a road in my town here of Elk Grove, and I come to a stoplight. When I get to the stoplight, it's about 4.30 in the afternoon, and all of a sudden, it's this whole image, this whole scene is playing out in front of me. I'm, I'm in my car. And it's just for the time of the duration of the stoplight. But all of a sudden, I see this congregation inside of a wooden church, an old wooden church. And I'm looking around, and I find myself standing up in front of all these people and giving a eulogy for my friend. And we kidly referred to him as Cowboy Bob because he was into horses and going out and cattle things, you know, and he'd brand, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And he had his guitar with him, and he'd play around the campfire. And, I mean, the guy was... Just he was the cowboy, the ultimate cowboy, and and I'm looking at the altar of this church, and there's a picture of the, you know cowboy Bob riding a horse with this cowboy hat, and I start to tell the people about his life and and about all these experiences and stuff, and and I realized at that moment that 
Bob, my friend, was gone. It was like, it was his way of telling me, hey, I want you to give my eulogy, talk about me. I'm okay. Hmm. So the next, the next morning, uh, I get an early morning telephone call from one of his brothers. And it was Glenn. And Glenn, I hear his voice. I said, okay, what's wrong? What's, how's Bob? That's the first thing I said. I didn't even wait for nothing else. He goes, well, he died sometime between 4.30 and 6 o'clock yesterday up on his, you know, up in his uh, ranch. He passed away and nobody was there. He died of a heart attack on a driveway. And I'm thinking I had that vision at 4.30 and they, they suspect that it might have been the time that he died. And a few days later, I'm, I'm at this church in uh, Sutter Creek up in Mother Lode country up here. If you're in California, it's, it's up in the foothills where they discovered gold. It's up in that area. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. House, this old wooden church. And I went to the memorial service. And I'm there and I'm looking at it going, this is it. Man. I, I just saw this right in my truck when I was driving. This is what I saw. And I found myself standing up, looking at his picture. Somebody handed me a microphone to give a eulogy. And, and I told the people the story of me being in my truck, having this wow. very same vision of seeing these very same faces in front of me and having my friend let me know that he was okay and they needed to hear that message. And it was like more than deja vu. It was like, it was a total replay. It was like, wow, here I am talking about something I hadn't even done yet, but I'm talking about like I'm doing it for the second time. So that got me to thinking about life and death and things this week. And um, as you know, from your own personal experience, if you hold somebody in your heart, they're forever there. There is no death. And a lot of people need to hear that message. I was just, I was thinking that before we started the conversation because it was a part of me says, you know, that's a message that's not getting out there. There's, when somebody's lost, especially, you know, close family member, a child, a wife, whatever, there's a part of us that's, we're sad. I mean, we're depressed not realizing that what we're really experiencing is we're missing somebody like they've taken a journey. And we didn't go with them. Yeah. It's a journey that we know we'll eventually join them with and we'll be there with them. Yeah. But in the meanwhile, you got to deal with that. So that experience kind of helped me deal with several other people that passed away in my life. And it's uh, it just kind of serves a reminder that there's, Life is continuous, just in a different dimensional aspect. Just because you can't see something doesn't mean it's not there. Yeah. But you feel it in your heart. Well, one thing I I do want to add to that, because I was having a conversation with someone about this very thing just a couple days ago, and they said that very thing. As long as you hold someone in our heart, they're still with us. And that's a very nice sentiment, but I think it goes beyond that. And this is why I like to talk to people like yourself, who've had so many spiritual experiences going back, I think about 60 years, right? I think your first one was around the age of 13. Yeah. Uh, that it's not only that they're in our heart, you know, that's, but they're actually still living that there is no death, that life continues. So this might be a good way to segue into some of your experiences. I know you've had several afterlife near death experiences, but maybe you can walk us through some of those. Stay with us. We'll be right back. 
Hey there, I'm testing out a new feature. I'd love to get your feedback on it. It's called Fan Mail, and you can send me a message right from the show notes of the podcast. So look for the link that says send me a text. You can ask a question for a future podcast. You can suggest a guest or just give me any feedback you want. Just remember, it is one way I can't text you back, and I will not have your name, your email address, or your phone number unless you include it in the message. Let me know what you think. Yeah, it's uh, as you mentioned, when I was eight years old, um, I was extremely sick. And neglectful parents or unaware parents or uneducated parents or unattentive, I don't know. But I was allowed to get to the place where I kept going to school until the, the teacher sent me to the nurse because I was so sickly looking. And then the nurse saw me and immediately sent me home. Of course, this is in the old days where they, they would send somebody home from the uh, second grade or third grade, right? Uh, and I had to walk three miles home. But I was so sick, they couldn't get me in the classroom, right? So I walk home. And then a few days later, somebody else sees me and says, oh, my God, this kid's got to go to, you know, see a doctor. So finally I get a doctor, but it's at that stage where it's the doctor's looking at me and telling my parents that uh, this could be too late. Mm. And I can only imagine for my parents at that stage of the game, being told that it's it's probably going to be fatal couldn't have been a good thing for him. I I'd have a hard time imagining that for myself. Sure. So I was taken away to uh, San Jose County Hospital. Basically, made a ward of of the hospital. Basically, they took over everything. I mean, I guess they figured my parents weren't doing such a good job. I don't know. But next thing I know, I put in a gurney, strapped down in the gurney, and I'm I'm rolling down this hallway with the lights up above, you know, and and, you know, faces looking down on you, eight years old, you feel like a prisoner, right? Like you're taken into a torture chamber. And, and I remember them telling my parents that uh, it doesn't look good. And they think I'm out of earshot, right? But I'm hearing this conversation that, hey, they're talking about my death, right? I ain't going anywhere. So I put into isolation because I got communicable diseases of various kinds. I got a kidney disease. I got a lung disease. Uh, I've got all kinds of other things going on. And First thing they do is they put me in this room and they stick big needles in my back to take fluids out of my lung. And I'm sitting there and uh, they get through and they just put me in bed. They go, there's a bed. That's everybody, everybody leaves the room. There's nobody else in the room. There's no nurses. There's no parents. There's no, I've been during this first night away from home in an isolation ward, totally by myself, mm. literally totally by myself. And I'm laying there in bed. And my life is just getting, it's, it's like fading. It's just, I feel myself fading. It's just my energy is just, I'm, I'm, I'm going, something's happening. And I'm laying there in a totally pitch black, dark room. And all of a sudden, it's a blaze of light. There's this light in front of me, this sphere, this orb, whatever it is, just this light. And I, and I sit up, and I'm looking at it. And then I realize when I'm sitting up looking at it, that the other me, the physical me, is laying down. I'm mm-hmm. sitting up, but there's somebody below me. And I'm going, oh, that's, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So it's dawning on me that there's a separation going on. And, and then I'm feeling the light, and it's, it's feeling like love. It's mm-hmm. really. It's penetrating. It's 
it's hugging, it's, it's squeezing in a good way. It's, it's your home. Mm. Have no fear. This is about love. And so I'm, I'm graced with this love and I'm sitting there and, and then I'm watching this light expand and expand. So there's no darkness left in the room. It's, it's chased, dissolved and killed off all the darkness. All is there is light. Every corner of the room is light. I can't see the room anymore. I can't see the bed anymore. I can't see my body anymore. It's just me standing there surrounded by, well, more like embraced by mm-hmm. the light. Mm-hmm. And I sense that something was getting ready to happen, and, I, and, I, and I'm looking at the light, and all of a sudden there's this unfolding of events, future events for the next 50 years of my life. There's who I'm going to marry, being in a war. I didn't know about Vietnam at the time. I mean, we were talking about 1954 or 53 or something. There's, there's a war I'm going to be in. But I see I survived, so that was good. Mm-hmm. I see helicopters crashing. I, I see the house I'm going to buy. I see my future children. I see everything laid out. I even saw John F. Kennedy assassination, wow. which, which I later on shared uh, with my high school principal. And, and uh, that didn't go over too good. A week before Kennedy was going to be assassinated, I'm telling the principal, hey, hey Mr. Stanga, that President is going to get killed in, in in Texas next week. Yeah, okay, Bill, let's go back to classroom, right? You know, and then when it happens, and nobody says nothing to you, right? Wow. Now, if you know you'd made that prediction in uh, this year about anybody in politics that got shot, you'd have Homeland Security at your doorstep, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Yeah. Know when you know it, you know. Anyway, so I see this unfoldment of my events in my life and some world events but mostly my personal life. And I knew from looking at that, that that was my life. And so I was going to be continuing at some level for a period of time because I see these things unfolding. But then there was a strange phenomena. There was these two numbers in the middle of this vision. There's a two nine and it flip over. So the two looked like a five. So but. 2959, 2959. I kept flipping around there and I'm going, that must have some significance. At the time, I didn't know what it meant. Hmm. I've had people since say, oh, that's your Saturn arising. I'm not an astrologer guy at all. Saturn arising, it'll be, you know, 29 years and 59, it comes back into your chart. And, yeah, okay, great, big deal. But what happened was right after my second near death experience, when I was uh, 58, almost 59, right, almost 59 years old, I was in India hiking, and I was coming back from a place called Babaji's Cave, which is written about in the autobiography of a yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda. It's about this cave where this ancient spiritual meditation technique is brought back to the world and given to uh, Larry Masha to pass on to the world. And it's a very sacred place that's protected. But meanwhile, I spent 50 some years trying to get there because I, I read about it. I wanted to find it. I finally get there. I have this wonderful experience in the cave. And I'm coming back down the mountain and I'm standing on this cliff, 30 foot cliff. It wasn't sheer drop. It kind of went a couple of steps down. 
and that's the time I picked to have a heart attack. I have a heart attack, and I'm having a seizure, brain seizure, and I'm just, and next thing I know, I'm passing out, and I'm falling 30 feet down, and I land on this boulder, big rock, about the size of an old Volkswagen bug. I'm laying on top of this rock, looking up at the sky, blue sky. And it was like the cartoon, The Simpsons, you know, where the sky opens up at the beginning of the credits, right? Uh-huh. I'm looking at this, this is exactly what I'm thinking when I'm looking up the sky. Well, this is cool. And then I'm all of a sudden I'm noticing that I'm rising. And I'm looking down, and there's my body just laying there with its eyes closed, dead. Wow. I'm just I mean, there's no pulse, there's no heartbeat, there's no breathing. I'm watching myself and I'm thinking, oh, I've, I've experienced this kind of before. I, I kind of remember that feeling. I'm feeling loved. and I'm looking down at the body and I go, well, I feel sorry for the body, but I'm good. Wow. So I'm good. Well, that body's not good, but I'm good, right? It's just laying there. And, uh, and I'm feeling that familiar feeling again. Divine love. I mean, love. But I'm also feeling, you know, maybe it's not the time. And I'm kind of, the thoughts kind of in my mind. And all of a sudden, I'm looking down there, the body laying on the rock, and there's this snake, a large, if there's such thing as a small, they're all large. <laughs> Whatever snake is crawling over your feet, it's large regardless of. Yeah, absolutely. Right? It's large. It's huge, right? Yeah. So I got this humongous snake crawling across my feet. And instead of being frightened, I get excited. And when I get excited, it's like it's like the paramedics go with, with those paddles, where those uh, defibrillators, mm-hmm. clear. You know, it's like, boom, my body jumps up. It's like that cobra snake w- w- was a defibrillator for my heart. It's like, mm-hmm. boom, and I jump up and I'm standing up on the rock and I'm inside my body again. And what's the first thing I do? I start grabbing the body of the snake. <laughs> it's slithering by and I'm trying to grab the snake. I just, I feel love towards this snake. Hmm. And I chase it through the, the grass and I find it ends up going into this waterfall. And I'm sitting there looking at the waterfall and I, and I have this thought in my mind. If, if you've read the autobiography of a yogi, if you haven't, do so. But there's a chapter where this great saint sage, Larry Masha, uh, has his last, one of his last wishes uh, created for him, a gold palace. And, and then it dissolves. And then he's told, go down to this stream with this little waterfall and wash yourself and bathe and, and rest, you know. And I'm there looking at that. Nobody ever knows where that little waterfall was at, but this snake went behind it. It was a little waterfall. It was just a little trickle, you know, six, seven, eight, nine feet at the most. And the snake is sitting behind inside of it, and I'm watching it. And that's the story that's coming to my mind. I'm thinking, my God, I found the lost I found the lost waterfall. This must be it, right? Everybody felt happy. So anyway, so now being a typical guy, let's fast forward. That was like in October of 2004. Okay. February 2005, right? There's a little time lapse, right? Remember, I just had a heart attack, right? I finally decided to go to the doctor. Oh, wow. Only, only when I get home and I've collapsed uh, six times, you know, I'm on the floor of my garage. I finally go, you know, maybe this thing is, maybe I should check on it. You know, it's not just going to go away. So 
I tell my wife, I says, hey, I'm not feeling good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drive myself to Kaiser six, seven miles down the road. I don't tell her I've just had a heart attack. Of course, that'd scare her. So I get behind the wheel of my truck. I drive seven miles to an ER having a heart attack. Look for a parking spot. You ever been to a hospital? There ain't no parking spot, so you got to go. I'm driving around for 10 minutes. I come inside, and the emergency room's got a line of 22 people, 22 people ahead of me, this nurse to check in, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you come in an ambulance, they take care of you. If you walk in, you stand in line. Some stand in line. A number of minutes go by. God knows how long. And I get up there. She hands me a clipboard. She says, fill this out. So I fill it out with the, you know, the number of my health card names, you know, all that stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. And then the question, what are you here for? I said, I'm having a heart attack. That's all right. Right. I get another line. There's about three people. She gets through to them and then she comes to me and she picks it up. She looks at my clipboard. She goes, says here, you think you're having a heart attack? I said, no, I know I'm having a heart attack. She goes, well, let me be the judge of that. So she takes out her stethoscope. She listens to my heart. Next thing you know, she's, this man's having a heart attack. She's ringing bells. Things are happening. I got people coming to put me in a gurney. But I was just totally calm. And especially when I, she asked me how I got there, I said, well, I drove my truck. <laughs> so that's why there was no belief on her part that I could be having a heart attack. Right, right. right. So I'm taking it in the doctor, and doctors look at him and think, well, it can't be that bad. I mean, you drove yourself here. You're, you're, you're talking. You're not, you know, you're not making any, you know, crazy things going on with your body. And I said, oh, I'm having a real heart attack. I said, but you know, it's, it just doesn't seem fair. He says, what do you mean? I said, well, for six decades, I've been a vegetarian. For three, four years, I've been a vegan. I don't drink. I don't, I don't do cigarettes. I don't do drugs. I don't do sugar. I don't do caffeine. I don't do nicotine. I mean, I'm st- I take care of my body. I meditate, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And a guy looks at me, and I remember I went to that 2959. Here's, here's where that story goes. Mm. So he looks at me, and I'm... One month from turning 59. One month from turning 59. And I just learned that a guy that was born in the hospital the same day as me, we shared the same birthday, same hospital, an hour apart. Our mothers were uh, roommates in a hospital ward. And, and we didn't meet each other till years after the fact. I was in San Francisco. We met each other in, in, in Sunnyvale, California, when we were in a class and realized when we exchanged information that we were born the same day, same place. And just an hour apart, right? He wow. was Irish. I was Irish. You know, I was William Hector McDonald Jr. And he was uh, Paul H. O'Brien. I think it was Hartwell O'Brien Jr. I mean, it was like, anyway, very similar. And I'm thinking, well, we shared the same astrology chart. And then before this happened, I'm told that he died. You know, before he reached 59, I'm thinking, oh, my God. I mean, he didn't take great care of himself, but it was like, so I go to this doctor. I'm saying, you know, it just ain't fair. I mean, here I am taking care of myself for almost 59 years. Mm-hmm. And here I am having, a, having heart attacks. And he looks at me and he folds his hands. And he looks at me and he says, well, Mr. McDonald, he says, with your genetic makeup, you're lucky you didn't die at 29 instead of making it almost to, 20, to 59. So then I said, 29, 59. But I'm still a month away from 59. So I was a little leery about 59. But yeah. So that was those two things flipping around. It was like, if you don't take good care of yourself, here's your future. 29, it's over. If you take good care of it, maybe you're going to make 59, right? Mm-hmm. But I, 
I found that I go, it, it finally made sense to me. I go 2959. So that led me to another decade long of search and things. And then it was in my, Oh, it was in 2011. That's what, eight years ago. I was in my late sixties and I went back to India via Germany. I go to Germany and in Germany, I'm having heart problems. And I go, this sounds familiar, man. You know, like an elephant sitting on your chest, sharp pains. I'm not, I'm not telling anybody. And I did a workshop over there and, 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 and I traveled. And, and then I left from there and I went to Mumbai, India. And I ended up at this ashram with, with the guru. And uh, I get there and I'm introducing him to these big venues, you know, thousands of people in mm-hmm. India, Mumbai and Pune and different places. And one of these places, I'm sitting up in the audience I'm not introducing him that, that morning. And I collapse in the middle of this crowd. And I'm having a full-blown heart attack. I'm dying. Nobody sees me. And here in India, here's India, right? You got thousands of people in the stadium. And I'm laying in the stadium and everybody's standing up watching him. And I'm laying there dying and nobody's paying attention to me. It's like, I go, what? So finally the guru, he senses something and, and he tells the crowd he wants them all to concentrate on on the heart and the sun coming up the sunrise and concentrate that energy on the heart. And he kept telling them about the healing energy of the heart. He went for 20 minutes and he goes, what's he doing this thing about concentrating the energy of the heart, the sun, the heart healing. Finally, I get up and I'm going, wow, that was cool. So anyway, I'm told I got to leave. I told I had a major heart attack. And uh, so on my way back, uh, and they let me fly from India. I got this stuff from the medical hospital. They're saying I had a heart attack. They let me on an airplane fly internationally. I'm like, okay, great. So you know what happens on an international flight. You're going to get a blood clot, right? So I get a blood clot. I collapse in uh, Denver, Colorado, at, in the customs line, and they come and they take me out of the customs line. They work on me for six hours, and you're not going to believe this, but they let me back on the airplane fly to Sacramento for two hours. <laughs> And a heart attack, right? So you got to go, what? You know, uh, I would have never let somebody do that. But then let me go. I said, okay. I said, well, I'm reporting in the hospital when I get there. And I did. As soon as I saw my doctor, he, you know, put me in in, uh, ICU. And I spent four days in ICU before they could operate on me because I was too weak. So I get this operation. Here's the other near-death experience, the last one I've had. Uh, I'm going in for open heart surgery, which means they're going to cut my chest open. And in this particular case, I asked the doctor what's going to happen. He says, well, we're going to get ice or cold water, something. Somehow they were going to use something to actually stop my heart and my lungs. But they were going to have my artery hooked up to a machine. And so my blood was going to go in one, one side of this machine and oxygenate, and it was going to come out and pump back in my body. So they didn't need my lungs to work. And it in my heart to work. Mm-hmm. So the doctors tell me, he says, well, in an essence, you're dead. We're just keeping the body alive. And he kind of said it kind of half jokingly, but I'm thinking in my mind, no, that sounds like death to me, right? The machine is doing everything. I'm not doing nothing, right? And then I said, am I going to feel anything? He says, he says, well, when you're on the heart-lung machine, we can't give you all the, the heavy doses of, uh, of painkillers because – you know, it's, it's too dangerous. So, so we got a few people, not a lot, 5%. I was one of them. 
you'll feel something, right? I said, oh, that's great to look forward to. So anyway, so I'm laying on this, I'm naked. I'm laying on this ice cold metal table. I don't know why they never heat them. They're ice cold. And, and then uh, somebody decides to, to roll a sheet under me. I, I, you know, I, yeah, oh yeah, I put a sheet. And so they're getting ready to put me out. They give you a shot. You count backwards. I get to about 95 or six or something. I'm out. I don't remember. It was just, but as soon as I was out, and this is what's really uniquely different about this out-of-body experience, this near-death experience. I haven't heard anybody have exactly like this. And if you go to IONS, you listen to literally dozens and dozens of experiences. Very few meet the criteria. You die, you go through a tunnel, you have a review, boom, you know, you see Jesus, here's your dog, there's your mother. Not all of them are like that. Variety. And it really depends on your on your personal belief system, your religious background, your culture. And I, I think the divine God will give you almost anything that makes you happy, basically. So it's like, this is what you expect, that's what you get. But this was not even in that ballpark. I find myself totally out of my body, that body on the table. But in my body, a physical body, in southern India, standing mm-hmm. at and I'm standing there, and I'm not naked. I got clothes on, so at least I, I'm decent when I reappear someplace. I just want the record to show that. Yeah. And somehow I get clothes on, but there I am standing outside of this temple. And then I remembered when I'm standing there, I had my naughty palm reading done in India the year before. And that that is a reading done where they go back and they find these palm leaves where these ancient seers, these rishis, channeled future lives of people and they wrote down the future of these people 2,500 to 5,000 years ago. Yeah, I want, I want you to tell that story. Uh, we'll after, tell that. After you finish this one, yeah. So I'll go in detail. But one of the predictions of that was that someday, you know, in two, three, it was, I'm thinking, that was the time, man. They said so many, there it is. This is a time frame, right? At this period of time, I would travel to, and I was thinking I would take a physical trip there, You'll travel to this temple in, in southern India. When you get there, you will walk uphill two to four hours. Mm-hmm. And at the top of this hill, you're going to find the, all the rishis. All the rishis will be waiting for you. They will not impart knowledge on you. Be, they'll just awaken it. In other words, you won't have to ask any questions. You'll already know. You will sit there with them. So that was the prediction. I go, what a stupid prediction, right? So there I am standing there, and I'm thinking, well, that operation is going to take close to eight hours. What else do I got to do, right? I mean, what I got to do, right? Mm-hmm. So uphill, I, I followed it, and it's like two to four. I'm working a couple hours uphill. I'm walking. I am physically walking. I People are walking by me. They see me. I see them. I mean. So people I, saw you. Yeah. I, I could touch things. They could touch me. I could bump into somebody. I could feel the breeze. I could feel the sunshine. I mean, I'm a real body, not an astral body, not a vision. It's a body. And so I'm enjoying that. Once in a while, I would feel my body like somebody had hands in it, pushing, pulling something. So that was happening in far, but I could kind of sense something going on in that body walking up the hill. Hmm. So I get to the top of the hill, and there's a clearing, and there's some stumps and some trees and some rocks and boulders it's a campfire and there's these rishis i don't know how many there was 
you know, I don't know, 20, 50. I have no clue. I didn't count. No, there was a bunch of guys sitting there and they had the funny looking hair. Unlike you and I, they had hair, you know, real guys. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'm looking at all this and I'm going, wow, this is what we predicted. There's the Rishis. And so guy offers me, I sit on a rock. I'm sitting on this rock. And, and I look over there and they're standing in the corner with his hands folded. Is my guru. I'm looking at him. Yogaraj Gurnoff. I'm going, Gurnoff. And he goes, <laughs> you could skip a beat. You could skip a few beats, but don't give a part. I'm going, that's a strange thing to say. So I'm there. And, and I did feel the need to ask no questions. I mean, I, I kind of knew I knew. Mm-hmm. I didn't bring all that back with me. I'd like to say, oh, yeah, I got it all right here. No, I'm still some dumb guy that I went. But when I was there, it was like, oh, that's why. That's how come. You know, that's the purpose. I understood it. But I wasn't allowed to take notes and bring it back and write a journal about it. Right. So all of a sudden, there's that, remember that blaze of light we talked about? That blaze, there's that orb, that blaze of light like a giant sunshine. And I hear the most softest, loving, angelic, divine, feminine, definitely feminine voice. And it says, Bill, just give up your heart. You don't owe anybody anything anymore. You've done enough. You've served. You've given. You don't have to suffer any more pain. I promise you no more pain promise you bliss, peace, joy, mm-hmm. love. Just give up the heart. Come. And so my guru's back here going, skip a few beats, but don't give up heart. But that same line, right? And I'm going, <laughs> what do you got to add? He says, he says, I want you to stay. I go, why? He says, because you got more pain and suffering. I go, what? I said, wait a minute. She's telling me bliss. Joy, painless, and you're telling me stay because you're gonna you're gonna give me more pain and suffering. He says, "Oh yeah, more than you ever had, because before, when you had great pain and stuff, you never felt it because you were just divinely blissed out. And I mean, you could have your tooth tooth. I had my tooth drilled, and I never used to take any Novocaine. I mean, uh, I could take pain. It was just like I think about it, it was gone. End of story, right? No more. He said that gift is gone. We want you to suffer, so it doesn't do people good if you tell people." about how you can get rid of pain. If you've never had real pain, you got to be able to suffer and find a way in the physical world to get rid of pain so you can help people like your veterans. And I'm going, well, I, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. Yeah, I mean, this is not a good deal. And he goes, and here's one of the reasons he kind of does this. I remember I had that life review where all those images came. This was future. And it wasn't so much about things, but about pure people. It was faces, a sea of audiences and individuals. Some were audiences, like I see the audience, mm-hmm. some were individual people. And I was basically told that there's something that's going to be missing from these people's journey if you choose to go. You can. It's a choice. You can go. You mm-hmm. don't own anything. But these people will be missing something. Mm-hmm whether it's hope, inspiration, 
spiritual story you share with them, teaching them some lesson, being a friend. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of possibilities, but I, I, at the time I could see and sense and feel what they were. Some were just large audiences of people gathering. Some were individuals that I was really going to spend some time with. And what's interesting is, to skip ahead just for a moment, I have been meeting those people. Yeah. Some of them on email not even know it until they finally send a picture or I meet them in person. I go, oh, it's not like I recognize the email coming. No, it's like when they send something, I go, oh, very few I tell because it's kind of spooky and weird. But there's some people I've kind of mentioned that, yeah, you're one of those faces because I think they need to hear that and feel it and sense it for some reason. So that was kind of shown. And then my guru kept reminding me, no, you got, you got all this pain. I go, I go, why should I do that? He says, because it's your dharma. It's your purpose. You're a warrior. It's a warrior's purpose. It's all about loyalty to your gurus, loyalty to these people. It's about loving and serving. It's not about what's good for you. Yeah. I go, what? So anyway, so while I'm there going through all this fight back and forth, all of a sudden, apparently, remember the paddles, they jumpstart my heart, and all of a sudden, I'm in this beautiful meadow, and all of a sudden, boom, and I'm finding myself in my real body, the naked body on the table, uh, with an open chest, um, and all of a sudden... I'm feeling the greatest pain. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, they've cut all my ribs. They've torn mm-hmm. it open. They've, they've sewed this. They've done that. They've cut, you know, they, I don't know if you can see that, but I got scars all the way up the arms and the legs where they took the arteries and everything. So it was uncomfortable. I'll just put it that way. It was uncomfortable. Yes. Yeah, yeah. right? And uh, so they're stitching me and wiring me back up together. And I don't feel it at all. And then, I go through recovery and I'm in the cover and you got a tube down your mouth and you got, uh, I don't know if it was imagination, but it felt like my eyes were taped shut for a while. I don't know if that was real or not, but it, cause I couldn't tell. I had my eyes shut, but it felt like they were taped together. Mm-hmm. Then pretty soon after a few hours, they're finally, I could open my eyes and they take the tube out. Next 10 days didn't go well. Normally you have a heart, open heart surgery, three, four days nowadays, they got you out of the hospital. And next Fill up the bed, move you out, right? right. Especially if you've got insurance, they don't want to pay for more than the minimum amount of time, right? Come exactly. On. Yeah. So I'm 10 days still after this operation, right? I'm four days pre-surgery, and I'm, I'm now 14 days in the hospital. And every day, I'm getting worse. I have five blood transfusions. I'm having a doctor really have to do something to me every day. But every time I close my eyes, every time I close my eyes and just kind of go off into a nap or into a dream state, I'm back there on the hilltop Hmm. having this conversation with a guru going, you can skip a few beats, but don't give up heart. And and then the beautiful angelic woman going, no, come now. Bliss, we're waiting for you, (laughs) right? It's all yours. So I got this battle going in all honesty, I'm leaning towards bliss and feeling good. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not proud. I'm not proud at all, right? I say, no, you know, that feels pretty good. I'm thinking, and so anyway, on the 10th night, about 1030 at night, they're getting ready to wheel me downstairs for emergency procedure because I'm filling up with fluids and it's just not good. I'm in a gurney and they're wheeling me out of the room and my phone at the hospital rings on the bedside. And I go, no, I got I to answer that. And they go, no, no, no. I said, no, 
I have to answer that. So finally, they let me answer, and I get on the phone, and I go, hello. Of course, I sound like em- em- uh, who's that Fudd guy, Emma Fudd? Elmer Fudd, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I sound like him. My voice was so ragged, right? And I hear this voice on the other end with a heavy Indian accent. Beal, this is Gurnoff in India. And my thought was, yeah, how many Gurnoffs do I know? You got to get it. Yeah, okay, now it's down to one. So he goes, the next thing he says is, you could skip a few beats, but don't give up heart. And I'm going, what? What? He says, you heard me. You could skip a few beats, but don't give apart. That was like a code thing or something, I guess, because that's what I've been hearing for 10 friggin' days, right? So then he goes, he says, now, you don't want to embarrass me. Not a good thing to embarrass your guru. I just, I'm sending 100 people from the ashram up to the temple. I just told them I was going to heal you. <laughs> Wouldn't look very good if that didn't happen, right? I go, what? What? So now he puts his guilt trip on me. Was it good enough that he could play this thing about uh, it's your duty? But now it's like, no, if you die, you're going to embarrass him and make him look like a liar, right? Yeah, yeah. And I'm going, so it wasn't being motivated because I've got grandchildren, beautiful, who I love, or my wife, who I love, or doing good, beautiful things for other people. It was a sense that I did not want to embarrass my guru. Yeah. I mean, as crazy as that is, but he finally found the one button that he could push, <laughs> right? Got the loyalty button, the duty button, but he goes, nah, nah, nah. you can't embarrass him, right? So I tell my wife, she was up there and I wheeled me out. I told her, I says, I'm going to be, uh, I'm gonna be out of here in 36 hours. She goes, yeah, yeah, okay. All right. I was. I was in very good shape, but I was out of there in 36 hours. But that was my, and then real neat things happened before, during, and after that that all kind of tied together in one big story. But that was my three near death experiences, mm-hmm. but I had numerous out-of-body experiences, a rainbow body experience, which was greater than the near-death experiences. It was more encompassing and more enlightening. A rainbow, and, you said? A, a, a rainbow body. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even know what that term was. It was back in the early days of my marriage. Uh, I guess I was like uh, 20-something, late 20s. And I'd been meditating three, four hours that night. I had this thing. I didn't want to take time away from my family. So I'd wait till the family was all in bed sleeping. And then I'd start my meditations, which means I wasn't getting a lot of sleep because I'd get up and do long meditation in the morning too and then work all day. So, but it, I was young and it was good discipline. And I was had a real extremely long meditation this one night. And, I'm, and I get to bed and next to my bed, I don't know if I got a picture of it. Yeah, I don't know if you can see that picture over there by nightstand. That's Paramount Yogananda. Yes, yes. Okay, that's that's the actual same frame picture. I mean, maybe a new frame, but that's the same picture. Mm-hmm. I had that sitting on my nightstand, and I'm staring at it, and I'm looking at the eyes of Yogananda. I'm looking at his eyes. And I don't know if other people do this, but if you look at any religious picture, whether it's a drawing of Jesus. And I had to correct some young people that go, no, I got a picture of Jesus. No, you got a drawing. No, no, it's a picture. I said, is it autographed? Yeah. Uh, so if you look at, 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 a, at a rendition, you know, art, whatever it is, or, or photo, it all works. When you look at the great ones, whether it's Buddha, Jesus, especially Jesus, the eyes become alive. Mm-hmm. The picture comes alive. And that's what happens. Staring at all of a sudden it's, it's like alive. 
it's like, it's looking at me, looking at it, right? I'm going, and then all of a sudden, boom, I am totally out of my body. Not only am I out of my body, I am not possessing anybody. I'm, I'm this thin film. A film is the only word I could say, like, like a film of color. Hmm. A f- like a rainbow. Just, I mean, how thick is a rainbow, right? It's, it's just a rainbow. And this whoosh, rainbow is soaring. And at the time, there was no way to describe it. But after watching Star Trek, you know, at the beginning, when they go, warp speed, and you go, shh, all the lights are coming by, you know. And, you yeah. know warp, that's what it was like. It was warp speed. Everything was just going, whoosh, and I'm going whoosh, into this world, right? And I'm seeing the cosmos. And I'm seeing all those beautiful color pictures you see where they show all these odd shapes and black holes and and worlds being created and destroyed and planets and suns and odd, just all that stuff, right? Just, wow. And I'm traveling. Now, when I was having this experience almost 50 years ago, 40-some years ago, I thought of it as traveling. And then one day after a long meditation up in in India at an ashram, it dawned on me when I was sitting there, I go, wait a minute. I was not traveling. I was expanding. Hmm. It was expansion of the consciousness because if you travel, you're going to go one direction. Hmm. I'm going 360 hmm. up and hmm. down, sideways, every angle. It's like all. And not only am I expanding, I am feeling the light and the energy and the colors as its base product, love. Hmm. And I'm hearing this beautiful sound of creation. I mean, the cosmos has a sound. It's like, it's Indian, and India tried to explain to me when I was hiking around Himalayas, he's trying to talk about the Om sound. He goes, mm-hmm. that's just, that's the sound of, of all the energy moving around and all those electrons in your body, right? It's, it's, the, it's the atoms. All that energy is moving around. It makes a sound. Mm-hmm. The sound yeah. is the Om, right? And so... When I was taking this trip, I'm thinking, there's a sound here. And I was a part of that sound. I was a part of the colors. I was a part of everything that I saw, felt, breathed, touched, heard. And there was no such thing as you're seeing through your eyes, you're hearing through your ears. It's the whole rainbow body of me sensing all these things at whatever where I'm at. It's like it's like you got a finger and your finger's got a cell. Yes. That cell is just as much a part of this whole entire body as any part. Right. Like in the cosmos, it's like a holograph. In, in, in that if you take a holograph mirror or something and you break it, and you see all the reflections are exactly the same, it's all the same. It's everything's the same. Mm-hmm. Holograph, then holograph, then holograph. It's just, it's all one. So I'm going through this, and then I realize, here's the strange part. I realize that I'm not traveling alone. That I'm in this rainbow body. But let's go back to that cell on the finger. I'm like a cell on this rainbow. This is a whole consciousness 
Mm. It's not just by one little ego, but it's, it's, it's many. Okay. We're feeling, thinking, and, and being one. We're being this rainbow, just like a cell in the finger. It's still an individual cell in the finger, but it's. So you're sharing the experience of the collective consciousness? Is that what Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Good. Thank you. I couldn't find a word. Thank you. So, and all of a sudden, I back to this knowledge thing. It's like, that's why I'm here. That's why I was there. My past life, future of the world. I mean, it was, everything was just unfolding. And here's the strange part about it, time. Because, you know, there's no time. It was an unfolding of about 300 million years, forwards and backwards. Hmm. Yet in earth time, when I finally came back, in earth time, in my body in a bed, it was an hour and 10 or 15 minutes. Hmm. But it was 300 million years. And I'm experiencing... Uh, the future, like it's now, it's all, it's all happening at once. It was like I realized that you could concentrate and focus on any part of the future or the past. It's all now. Hmm. And, you, and you could see the reasons why things happen and everything else. And then I was in touch with the other cells, collective consciousness of this body, and realized that we had a purpose. And the purpose of this collective rainbow, this particular one, there may be other ones for other things. You know, maybe there's one out there that's for science and one out there for philosophy, one out there for politics, one out there for inventions, one out there for humanitarians, you know, stuff like that. People that serve world peace like Martin Luther King or Mahatma Gandhi might be in a different, you know, I mean, it was that type of thing. Mm-hmm. That was coming to my mind that there was this separate task. This group had a different task. This task was purely spiritual love. This was spirit, about spiritual evolution, and that was a task of this group of people to reincarnate, come back into bodies at various times, and it's, it's all now, right? So you could come in yeah, yeah. wherever you wanted to pop in, right? And give some new thoughts and stuff. And I, and, and I basically learned that when you come back, you don't have the memory of that. Right. You're starting fresh and new, and, and then at some, some point in your life, you pick up the, the task. You pick up your, what you're supposed to do. And at the very end, you may have a glimpse of who and what it's all about. Yeah. If you're, yeah. Not necessarily, but you're a volunteer. And even though you, people have this thing about, well, I'm going to meditate. I don't want to come back here. There are a group of people out there that will – voluntarily come back because of the greater love of all the group and help all evolve. And so there's this group, I don't know how big it is, but this group's task is stuff that was just fed to me. And it could all be crazy. You know, you don't know me enough. It could all be crazy stuff. So I just throw it out there for you to think about. Mm -hmm. And, it wasn't until I had a momentary thought about my son and daughter and my wife. 
all of a sudden I gave a reality to that life, to this life, to this body, that all of a sudden it was, it ended 300 million year journey. And I was boom, thrown back a thousand pounds into my body, Mm -hmm. laying in my bed, crying. My wife's just like, what's wrong? I'm I'm bawling. I didn't want to come back. Mm. I mean, it was so beautiful. And I came back and I was let known that some stuff I'd remember, basic journey, various components of it. Some things I could never talk about. Some things, even though I want to, I can't recall. It's going to race it. If it was a photograph, they'd plixelate it. <laughs> okay, you're not going to remember, you're not going to see. And in time, since this thing's happened, certain things come back to me. I go, oh, now is the time for me to remember this. Now is the time for me to realize that it wasn't traveling, it was expanding. Those, those kind of aha moments come. Yeah. The fact, and it's not, not through a thought thinking process. It's through a meditative, you're open one day and it, the doors open up in the windows and you go, oh, that's what that was. So that experience uh, really was the most life-changing experience. So I came back and realized, because I kind of saw this thing goes and where we've been, and I also realized that we're, we got teams. You know, call teams anything you want. Mm-hmm. There's different groups, and you're in that group, and you got to help that particular group work together, but you're working for the greater good. Mm-hmm. And, 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 I, and, I, and I realize that when you see there's certain people out there that, uh, you know, they're like Thomas Jefferson or George Washington or Martin Luther King. You say, those are leaders, right? Those are leaders. They came into this world. They just weren't, I'm going to be this one day. It was there. It was imprinted on them. Mm-hmm. They came back and had to do what they had to do. And I got a feeling that some of these same people will be recycled again in some future time and place, you know, and that's the good news that I don't think we've lost any of these great ones. I think the real great ones have volunteered to come back and keep helping us. Yeah. And that includes Jesus. Yeah. I, I, you know, your stories are are so fascinating. There's so much in there, you know, uh, you answer a lot of questions. I think a lot of people have like, okay, if I have a near death experience, if it's so blissful on the other side, why do I, why would I come back? Or not only that, but if I'm on the other side, why would I volunteer to come here in the first place? Um, you know, why is there, why is there suffering here? You know, and, and I, I tell people, I think that suffering is kind of built into our existence here. Right? It's for, it's for learning. It's to have something to push back against. It's for, it's for our growth. Um, so I think your experiences do, you know, they give us some of those lessons and answer some of those questions. Um, yeah, I think, I think you asked the big ones there. First off, the question that nobody can answer, why would God create this place? I mean, I mean, if he created everything, and I don't have no doubt, everything's created from his consciousness. Mm-hmm. But that means he recreated the mosquito, right. rat, the plague, AIDS, death, you know, crippling diseases, you know, uh, evil, the devil. I mean, come on, go ahead, everything... So both sides of this light, dark, light and dark, it's all his inventions, heads and tails. Right, right. So you got to ask yourself that question that can't be answered because you're asking it through an intelligent mind and not an enlightened 
consciousness. So you're asking on a level that you only can get an answer on a level and you can't understand it. Right. Why? But that's a question I've gobbled, you know, grabbled with and everything. I'm going mm-hmm. like, hey, come on. Because I always hear these guru guys go, it's all an illusion. It's all a dream. I said, well, you know, for that guy down the street, that's a pretty damn painful dream, right? Exactly. For him, it's real. It's all, nobody got killed. Nobody's dying. Nobody's in pain. I go, but, you know, so philosophically, it's great. But in the real world where this world where, you know, the, the foot meets the road, it's hard for people to swallow like, hey, I lost a child. I, I got somebody killed in the war. I had a car accident. Now I'm in a wheelchair. Uh, I, I got Lou Gehrig's disease. How fair is that? Right. I'm blind. But I ultimately believe that everything, and I mean everything, that happens to us is neither good nor bad. It's just stuff. Stuff that we need. It's in the recipe of life. You got to add a little of this, a little pain, a little suffering here, some joy, some bliss. Mix them together. That's life, right? But I think we need it to be able to grow. If there was no pain, if there was no suffering, if there was no death, who would reach out to become reunited with God? Who would want to be enlightened? You're happy. Going from day to day, that's good. It's only when we suffer some loss, money, people, prestige, you know, health, you lose something, it turns you inwards. Take a look at some of these people that, that have lost great prestige in the last decade or the last few years of me too. I mean, they, they could choose to become alcoholic, drug addicts, they could go suicide. Some of them, hopefully, will also realize that, well, I've also lost all that ego. I'm just a human being like everybody else. Yeah. Let's wake up. Let's go new direction. Glad it happened, so I'm not doing that anymore. Let's move on. Mm-hmm. That's the choice we have. So it's well, easy. Go ahead. I think choice is the key word there. Um, I, you know, I, I think what it, what it is is when something tragic happens to us, we have a choice as to how we look at it. And there are we are dualistic creatures. We have the human side, and we have our our spirit or soul or you know whatever you want to call our higher self. And we can choose to, to kind of wallow in the human side of it and say, woe is me, and this is a terrible, terrible thing that happened to me. Or we can try to raise that perspective and look at it from a higher perspective, a bigger picture, a longer term perspective. Um, that, you know, for example, with me, with my daughter passing, you know, I hear a lot of parents say, well, I'll, I'll never see my child again. And I've, I've never said those words because I know I will see her again. I won't see her in the flesh. I won't see her with these eyes. But I know that I will see her, you know, again, someday, you know, and, and that's inevitable. And so my joy comes in the fact that nothing can hold me back from that. No matter what happens between here and there, that's the ultimate destiny. And that's what keeps me going on a day-to-day basis. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi there. I'm really excited to tell you about my latest ebook. It's four lessons that you can learn from the near-death experience without going through all the trouble of dying to learn them. 
I've been studying NDEs for several years now. I am completely convinced that not only are they 100% real, but that there's some very universal wisdom that we can get from the near-death experience. And I've distilled that down in this book into four short lessons. And I've also given you all the reasons why I believe the NDEs are absolutely real. So go to www.grieftogrowth.com slash NDE lessons to pick it up for free www.grief2growth.com slash NDE lessons. I hope you enjoy it. Nobody but a fellow parent that's lost somebody can know where you're coming from. We can all say, a lot of people tell you, I know how you feel. Nobody does unless they've been there. I mean, it's a totally different thing. That's like me being a veteran. And then in combat and seeing guys get killed all around me and everything, you know, when you survive and, and some non-veteran saying, well, I know how you must feel. I don't know. Yeah, you no. don't. No, you don't. So that's why groups, let's go to what's something you're doing. You're working with people that had the same kind of experiences and you're working together. That's why groups are so divinely sent, formed, organized. They're a gift Alcoholics Anonymous, you get together, I'm an alcoholic, I'm a drug addict, you know, uh, you know, I'm a gambler, you know, Gambler Anonymous. All these groups work because who are they listening to? Other people that have been down the same road. Mm-hmm. Right? Right, right. And that's why I tell people, you know, if, if you've been there, especially if you get there and now you're reaching out and helping others, they have the same problem. So that's a gift. You were given you were given this so you could help others. And that sounds shallow at times, but it's not. It's really a, an opportunity to serve. Had you not had happen what you think of the people's lives that you would not have touched. Yeah. yeah I, I, I think about that all the time. You know, and I've always wanted to, I'm a, I'm a writer. I like to write, you know, I like to help people. And uh, I was thinking about Shana just a couple of days ago, but if Shana were still here, I would not be doing what I'm doing now. I mean, this didn't get activated, if you want to use that word, until her passing. And that's when it really, you know, kicked in for me to, to do it, what I'm doing now. So, again, it's something that I choose to say, okay, this serves a higher purpose. Um, from a human perspective, would I have ever chosen this? No. If I, could, if I could change it right now, would I do it? Absolutely. But since I'm here, I'm going through it, I might as well do the best I can with it, you know while I can. And, and it gives me the ability talking to a mother this morning that, you know, her, her son passed away uh, 14 and a half weeks ago is what she said. Fresh. And I'm like, okay, I remember 14 and a half weeks. And I remember thinking there's no way I'm going to make it another, you know, 14 weeks, let alone a year or four years. And I said to her, you know, for me, it's been four years now, you know, and, I, and if you had told me a fortune and a half weeks, I would still be here at four years. I would have told you no. So I'm, I'm, I'm here to be an example to you that you can make it to four years and to, you know, beyond. Well, I'm proud of you. It means anything. I, I think you're doing, a, you're doing God's work. I'll be blunt. And it's no small thing to reach out and help somebody over that first hurdle. The beginning's the hardest. Not necessarily the very beginning, because I've seen people, somebody, because I do a lot of memorial services and funerals, somebody passes away, be it a suicide, a car accident, disease, whatever age. There's that initial, everybody comes to your house, brings you food. What can we do for you? 
I'm here for you, just ask. And then about 14 weeks later, you're all alone. There ain't nobody there. But they're all gone. They're all gone. And yeah. don't mean well, but, you know, their life goes on. They just move on and, you know, and it's a new, they're on to something else. That's the real world is the real loneliness happens a couple, two, three months later. Yeah. And then you yeah. wake up. There's nobody, you know, talking to you. It's nobody's listening to you. It's just you. Yeah, and and they, you know, you know, they're like, why you should be over this by now? You know, people get that a lot. You know, why why are you still sad? Um, and I think you know, and every every loss is different. So, like you said, I don't, I have no idea what combat's like, um, and no one knows what it's like to lose, you know, to lose a child. But you know, when you when it's a child, it's you expect that they're going to be there longer than you are. So it's just a total upsetting of the natural order of things. And it's something that as a parent, I don't think you ever get over. And, and the way I tell people is it's like if you're carrying a weight, okay? So when you first start carrying this weight, you're working out, that, that weight feels really, really heavy. But after you work out so often or so long, that weight gets easier to carry. It doesn't get lighter, but it's easier for you to carry. So I think that's what happens with grief. It's like, I've, it's just become, I'm used to it. You know, it's something that I, that I can, I can deal with now and I can, I can get through the day to day words in those first few weeks or months, as you said, it's just like, you know, it just feels overwhelming that you can't, you can't do it. Well, one sense is when you're doing your shows and watch your videos, which I had, that you got a partner in crime and all this, it's like, you're not working alone. Oh no. <laughs> or you that, that radiates that, you know, like, Hey, this is a team. And, we're here to we are here to help you and uh and i think you've opened your heart up to receiving that energy and i, I think you're actually 100 correct if you think you're not i think you're being helped and i think you're doing exactly what you were born to do and your daughter died doing exactly what she was agreed to do mm-hmm. at that stage of her life for you to go into this mode for you to do this work so yeah. I, I do believe in pre-agreements I believe it's sometime before birth that uh, your guidance counselors on the other side, be whoever they may be, you know, angels or, you know, whatever, the great ones, uh, someplace along the line, they go, you know what? We need somebody out there that can do that. Who's, who's, who's going to be strong enough to endure this? Who can we entrust with this sacred duty? And I'm telling you right now, it's a sacred duty. And you did volunteer for it at some level, whether you know it or not. And so did she. Yeah. And moving the divine purpose. That was a new concept for me. Um, I didn't learn this till after she had passed. And I remember um, I was having a reading with Suzanne Wilson. And she said this to me, you know, you, this was planned. And she was over the phone. She said, I'm glad I'm not there because you probably, you know, hit me or something. And, but, you know, for some people that, that, they feel like that takes their power away because they, they, they believe in you know, free will. Um, I believe free will happens before we come here. And I believe that, you know, and I, and I just knowing and looking back and seeing the way Shana lived her life to the time she was here and how she lived the full out and all the people that she touched and all the things she set up before she made her transition um, and all the signs and, and, and synchronicities and things she sent to me since then, um, and I can't even, I, I could write books about all the synchronicities that have happened, the people that I've met, the people that have reached out to me, um, the things that have happened. So it's, it's 
definitely divinely ordained. And uh, as I always tell people when I'm doing these, or I tell people a lot of times even after we're done, I have a second monitor over here that uh, when I'm not working, there's nothing on it except for a picture of my wife and my two girls. And Shane is in the middle, and Shane is staring right at me um, the whole time I'm doing these. So I always feel her presence, um, you know, pushing me to do what I do. And, and you're right that you're going to this – is, this is not – if and when you will be together. And since there is no time, it's already now in a, there's a future now out there right now where that's already the truth. That's a true statement. The future now you're looking back at this, you know, and going, Oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was 100% correct. Here you are. Thank you. Yeah. And it's teamwork. And I, and I got a feeling my sense is that this is something that maybe you've worked with your daughter before. This is not nothing nothing new here. You guys have done God's work before in different levels, and this just took it to this level where you needed to to radiate a different kind of love and a different kind of help. And this is the only way it could happen. So basically, if you talk about making you know lemonade from lemons, this is this is the greatest sweetest drink you could drink. Yeah, we, well, we do we do the best of what we have, and you know, uh, meeting you a couple of weeks ago, and and looking at your your bio, and having a com- couple of conversations with you, uh, you know, you you inspire me, you know, greatly, um, and and so I'm like, okay, this is this is the kind of guy I want to be. This is the kind of things that I want to do, um, to, and I want to be that person for somebody else coming along behind me. Someone can look at me and say, okay if he can do this, then I can do this. And this is why I was, I tell people because you know, sometimes people will say to, to me, you know, you've got such great strength, you know, you're just, you're, you're just an exceptional person. And I'm, I'm not, um, you know, not, not at all. Uh, and it's, it's not easy. Um, it's, it's very hard. And I, you know, um, but I want to give hope to other people. And I, and I feel very blessed. Like I said, now I can be at the point where I can say, Hey, four years, you know, I got my four year pin. Um, so if, if I can make it four years and you're at 14 weeks or you're at two months or you're, I know a year, you're going to those first anniversaries. And I remember what those first birthdays are like, you know, the first birthday or the first Christmas or, you know, whatever. Um, and if you think I, I can't get out of bed today, then maybe don't get out of bed today, but try to get out of bed tomorrow. Um, so being able to do that is it's, it's a blessing. It's an honor. Just in this same theme, let me tell you a story about my, youngest grandson when he was three years old his other grandfather died and his other grandfather lived uh, about 50 miles from where he lives i lived just a mile or so away so they used to call him the the uh the faraway grandfather hmm. yeah they saw the grand call them both grandfather you know but faraway grandfather and then there's me grandfather right now there's faraway grandfather and the guy was a uh, part Native American. I don't know if he was Cherokee or whatever tribe he was, but uh, he, was a, he was a really unique guy. Mm-hmm. And he passed away and went to his funeral, came back home, and I got my grandson, three years old, at my house, grandfather's house, right? And he's playing with his Legos on the carpet. And I'm starting to talk to him. He says, quiet, quiet, Grandpa. I'm talking to Grandpa. And I go, yeah, you're talking to grandpa, you know, because no, no, far away, grandpa. And I said, really? And he's looking, you know, he's looking right at 
whatever, right? And he goes, and he's listening to a conversation, right? And I said, well, what's he saying, Johnny? Mm-hmm. He says, he says, he loves me. I said, you tell me love him too. So he tells me he loves him too. And Well, when I got that message, it was, you know, it's not just for my grandson. My grandson just has to be very open to those kind of things. Mm-hmm. That message is for his, his wife, you know, for the, the other grandmother. And she was, I didn't know the time, she was home. She was just packing up his stuff to give it to the Salvation Army, his clothes, his suits, you know, all that stuff, you know. Cleaning out the house of, of his memory, you know. He's passed on. And she was crying. She spent the whole morning crying. I didn't know any of that. So I said, you know, I'm going to call. I told myself, I'm going to call your other grandmother. I called her up on the phone, and she was kind of holding back her tears and her crying, right? And I said, let me tell you what just happened. So I told her, right? And I said, you know, he was telling Johnny he loves him, but it wasn't just for him. Right. It's for you, too. Right. And then she, you know, really broke down, but in a good way. So there's breaking down in a sad way. Then there's breaking down in joy. It's like. You know, I mean, she was, it was a good tears. But young people see things, know things, feel things, touch things. We always tell them it's their imagination. Yeah, yeah, sure, no, you know. And we ignore them. And if you keep ignoring them long enough, they don't even believe it themselves. Right. These are come from the same parents that tell kids Santa Claus is real, Easter Bunny is real, and the tooth fairy comes and gives you money for your teeth. Come on. You let them believe that stuff. But believing in angels and talking to dead people, they can't? Come on. Yeah. But, but I really do believe, as I've had situations where you're thinking about something, there's just there's something for you, because I know it's, it'll apply to you and some of the people you talk to. You're thinking about somebody, they're in your mind, you're in your heart, and all of a sudden, smell of roses or some other flower, usually roses, but it permeates the whole room. Wherever you, there it is, the next room. It's just roses, right? Mm-hmm. You go, why? Think about that person as roses. Um, it happens. We get visits and sometimes it's something as soft as that. Or for some people, it's finding pennies. Somebody else is finding feathers. Somebody else, it's uh, a certain song comes on. Once you identify it, it's really odd how many times that will really keep occurring at a, at a high incident rate beyond just chance. You know, it's really cool you mentioned feathers. Um Shannon sends me feathers and uh, so many, I don't even pick them up anymore, but I'll take a picture of them. I'll take a picture and I put it on Facebook. And now I have people sending me pictures of feathers on Facebook. And it's, it's so there, like, someone sent me a feather this morning. She said, I'm, she lives in Florida. She's in Boston. She said, I just saw this feather. And it made her think of me and it made her think of her loved ones. And so I, it touches me every time someone does that. Um, because they're like, okay, now I'm thinking about my, my father or whatever. So being able to pass that to somebody else, that, that sign, that remembrance, you know, is, is really cool. Yeah. When I went to, uh, the United Kingdom, uh, 2016, everywhere I went, there was feathers, mostly white feathers. I went to these people's house to stay there and there was a white feather on their doorstep. I don't see how it's just a big white feather on their doorstep. And then when I pointed out to the woman that answered, young woman that answered the door and she goes, she tells me a story about once upon a time she had a white feather and she built a little box, one of those boxes, you know, deep box, you put something mm-hmm. in it called, and, and for display. And she had it mounted and everything. And then she didn't have it after a few years, something happened to it. I don't know what, but the box always reminded her that. And that's cool. 
So I went hiking with her husband or went all over the place and everywhere we went, there was feathers. I went to give a talk in England and, and this guy that was sponsoring a talk says, well, let's go for a walk. I said, yeah, let's, let's take a walk. And we walked around one block this way, one block, a square block. Must have saw 200 white feathers, mm-hmm. 200. He's going, cause I was telling him about before we started to walk, I said, you know, feathers are following me all around uh, on this trip. I said, you know, mm-hmm. it'd be interesting. And yeah, 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 yeah. So then we start to walk and then, oh, there's a feather. And then, yeah, they was amused after about 10 feathers and then it kept going and going. Yeah. And it just got feather, 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 all the way around. Yeah. Across the street, nothing. Just the sidewalks we watched, you know, walked. So feathers, in fact, I just on, on YouTube yesterday, or not, not YouTube, but on uh, Facebook, I just posted pictures of feathers yesterday from a yeah. uh, I couldn't collect them because they're from a hawk. In, in America, I don't know if people know that it's against the law to pick up owl feathers and hawk feathers and eagle feathers. You got to be a shaman with a, a tribe. You got to be a you know medicine man or something, and you have to have a license. You can't get on an airplane with them; you'll get arrested. I, I, a lot of people don't know that they just pick up feathers. So yeah. I pick up feathers and other kind of feathers. But uh, so, so I found a bunch of feathers yesterday. I was just kind of smiling. I'm going. I took pictures of them, and I said, "Okay," but it's the feathered trail. I call it the feathered trail. Yeah, and uh, it's there, and, and I, I just had numerous things, and people all tell me the same story. Well, since you told me that, I found a feather yesterday or a feather this morning, or it's like yeah. all of a sudden now they're eyes are open. But now they're noticing them all over the place. Yeah. Well, we've been uh, going a little over an hour. I would like to ask you if you could, though, I'd love you to tell the Naughty Palm story. Um, okay. All right. I'm going to assume that most people were ignorant like I was. To say I was ignorant would be stepping it up as, as pretty good. <laughs> probably more stupid than ignorant. But I had no clue what a Naughty Palm reading was. I'm at the ashram. I've been there several months, and my guru goes, Bill, I want you to go down to Pune, the city that's close by, and I want you to get a naughty palm reading. I'm going, I'm thinking naughty? Yeah. And my palm, my naughty palm, what's my palm been doing, right? He goes, no, 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 no. Naughty palm. He says, it's, it's a palm branch. Oh, palm branch. Oh, okay. So they cut the fronds off it, and it's just a solid piece of wood, and they engrave stuff on it. And I go, okay. And I'm looking at him going, yeah. He says, well, they do this uh, 2,500 to 5,000 years ago. Great rishis sat around and they channeled, you know, something like the people, you know, people channel. They channeled future lives and they had these scribes write them down, engrave them in these pieces of wood and shellac them, you know, try to preserve them. And I guess some of them after a while fall apart and somebody copies them and puts them on another one. So some could be, you know, only seven, 800,000 years old. So, but they're close to the originals. And they did apparently numerous, uh, numerous palms. And so I'm thinking, okay, great. I said, well, how they how they know which one's mine if they got a million of these, right? He says, well, they take your thumbprint. <laughs> right thumb if you're a man, left thumb if you're a woman. I'm going, okay, great. He says, oh, no, no, no. He says, the, the squirrely lines on your thumbs. So like in astrology, you got 14 signs. Well, with thumbprints, you got 108 different kind of scrolls. So you can have like 108 different signs or something. Mm-hmm. It didn't make any sense to me. I'm going, yeah, okay, well, okay, that divides a million by 108. You still got thousands, right? Right. And, and so I said, okay, he says, now you go down and, and you get it done. I said, well, first off, I don't believe in it. It's a waste of time. And I don't want to spend the money. He says, no, for you, it's true. 
and, uh, and I want you to go down there. And I said, okay. So I go down there and, and I tell my friends that are with me, I said, don't nobody mention my name when we walk in. Nobody give me any clues. And every time they ask me a question, it's just going to be yes, no, no explanations, no further elaborating. Now you're close or not close. Just that's it. Yes or no. And they asked my thumbprint, which I gave, they put it on a tablet of paper and they said, well, put your initial next to it. So I put W for William, which I never go by. Let's go by Bill. You know, I, the only person that calls me William is, is, is my wife when I'm in trouble or somebody, right? William, <laughs> hey, what, what, what did I do? Anyway, so I sat down about an hour later, I get called into this room. It's about the size of uh, this room I'm in now, just a little small thing and it's got a little, a, an altar and they must have, they don't miss a bit. They got every, every God that anybody believes in is in there. There's Jesus, there's Buddha, uh, there, there's Zoroaster, there's, 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 there's uh, Zen stuff, there's uh, everything. I mean, there's every leader you could think of. They even got St. Francis of Assisi. I mean, I saw them all in there. I'm going, what? So anyway, they cover them all. And they got like 2,500,000,000 and 85 incense and candles burning. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like solid smoke when you come in there and it's like a curtain. And, and the guy comes out and he's carrying, he's looking like Venetian blinds. And uh, what it is, it's these pieces of wood. They got a hole drilled through with a cord. So there's about 20 of them held together. And the idea is they go to one that's taken from your pile based mm-hmm. on your, your thumbprint. And they ask you a series of questions. If you answer no to any of them, then that's not yours. One single no, it's not yours. So, guy goes to the first six. They're close. He says, intuitively, he says, I know this next one. The seventh one is yours. I said, okay, fine. Maybe I'm not giving any hints. Because I'm thinking these guys are like Las Vegas mentalist acts. And if, and if I gave you some training or even went online or read a book, I'm going to tell you right now, there's ways to manipulate your thinking where I can get you to, and I've done it with people, you know, name a name a fruit, a number, a tool, all this kind of stuff, and they'll all write down the same thing, right? And I already got it written down because of the way you talk to them for ten minutes. You've mm-hmm. got a mindset on that, right? Mm-hmm. Colors and stuff. Anyway, so I'm thinking, yeah, they're going to kind of go down that mentalist path, and mm-hmm. you know, they'll look impressive, but and then there'll be a cold reading, and they'll go, well, I think this could be, you know, none of that. So the guy gets the thing out, and he says, okay. He says, your name is four letters long. I go, yes. I'm thinking Bill. It's four letters. I don't tell him Bill. I just said yes. Mm-hmm. Says, it starts with a B. I go, yes. And he goes, it's B-I-L-L. Bill. And I go, yeah. And then he goes, and your father's name was, meaning he's dead, right, was the same as yours. And I had to say yes because I'm junior. Mm-hmm. So he's, you know, senior. So it's exactly the same, right? And then he goes, and your mother's name, and he couldn't pronounce it, and he spelled out Marcella, mm-hmm. which is an unusual word for an Indian to have written down on anything. But Marcella. And I go, yeah. And use the same term, was, meaning she's dead. And I said, yes, he's passed away. And then he, he goes through question after question after question. He says, you were like, he says, we don't have a word for it. Closest thing you got. I could think of, he says, you were kind of like a foster kid or something. You didn't have one parent with you. And maybe for a while you were separated from both parents. 
And I go, yes. And, you know, right there, basically, I was separated totally for a year. And I never saw my real father ever once after I was born. So, yeah, I was separated. So mm-hmm. I said, yes. I said, okay. And then he goes, and your wife's name is? I'm thinking, okay. Carol. I'm going, what? Carol? They got my wife's name down there. And I'm going, and I go, she graduated from prestigious university in the United States. And I was debating what to say on that because my wife would laugh because she went to, to Cal Berkeley, right? She thinks that's pretty, you know, a good school. I went to University of San Francisco, which I think, hey, that's, that's the top banana. But anyway, I said, yeah, okay, I'll give her that. And then it went down, my children, what I do for a living. All, it just question after question was right on. And then he goes, he says, okay. He says, your birthday is March 16th, 1946. Wow. That's what I said. I go, instead of saying yes, I said, wow. I go, oh. He says, but we apologize because we don't know exactly what hour it was. I thought, okay, all right, they're human, right? Doesn't know what hour. He says, well, we think it's between 105 or 110 and 120, 125, someplace in there. We're not exactly sure. Now, what they didn't know was when I was born, the doctor wasn't there. I was, I was born when they were giving my mother an enema. If you imagine that in your mind, don't imagine it too much. Because yeah. I was born in with a mouthful of crap. I landed right into the pan. Anyway, so the doctors came many minutes later after I was born. And the, and the doctors were asking everybody what time I was born for the birth certificate. And everybody, they had to take a guess. And they go, well, it's between 1, 5, 1, 10, and 1, 25. And they took a guess. about. So when I got on my birth certificate, it's a guess. Mm-hmm. So what these guys did was they gave me a guess as well. Wow. So it was like, how would they know that? Yeah. Like, weird, right? So they went to the thing and said, it shows here on this thing that uh, you're currently writing a book that'll be about your guru. Yeah. Spiritual based book. Yes. And, and then they, they named my guru and they, and they, and they talked about my children, the order of birth. So they said, you're currently writing a book. So apparently they knew what, when you were going to come in for this reading, right? Now oh, you're going to come in. You're intuitive. Cause that brings up the next thing. The guy goes, so now you want to know, if this was the right time to come in on this, because you could come in here next year, 10 years from now, or you could have been here 20 years ago and it wouldn't have been right. So this next piece of information is important because then it's not the, it's either the right time or not. I said, okay. He says, you recently worked on, and he, and he changed it. He says, it says play here. He says, but they didn't know about movies 5,000 years ago. So he says, intuitively, I know this must mean movie. You recently worked on a movie, but not as an actor. And I go, yeah. I helped rewrite a script, gave some suggestions for a script. But nobody knew that at the ashram. Wow. Just a couple weeks before, I was giving feedback for rewriting of a, of a movie. And I'm going, wow, because the timing was actually perfect, right? Right. So I went through a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, some really neat stuff. And uh, nailed it all. And then so I, uh, I reached down and I, I grabbed my wallet, you know, and I'm, I'm pulling out money. I'm going to pay the guy, you know. And, and he goes, no, 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 no. I go, well, thanks for the reading. He says, that wasn't your reading. He says, that was, your, that was just to find your index card. <laughs> now we're going to do your reading. Now we know who you are. We know it's, you know, stacked. And I said, really? So then six hours later, they take me upstairs. And they got a guy reading it. He's reading a different language from this stuff. And he's, he's, he's reading it to another Indian guy in another language. And then that guy's giving me an interpretation in English. So it's like, 
three deal process. And he goes back to the most significant past life that connects me with events today, not necessarily the last past life, but something that I would know and recognize why things are happening today. And the future. And they read everything I did from the time I was born to the time I walked in there. Wow. That first, because that would tell me, if they got that right, I'm ready to listen to the others. If that's wrong, I'm out of here, because that's a waste of my time, right? It's just mumbo-jumbo, right? He nailed everything. It was like, wow, man. You know, you got skin problems, you got heart problems. I mean, it goes to this whole stuff, right? So then he goes back to a past life, and my guru sent this note along that I gave him, because he wanted the astrologer to give me my worst sin of that lifetime. I go, oh, my God, what, what's the worst sin? Because there was somebody coming down the stairs to this reading room before I went up there, and they were crying, you know, because they, they, they tortured somebody to death and burned them up and, you know, popped their eyes out. And I go, holy cow, man, what's the plan, right? You know, it's bad, bad karma, right? So the guy goes, he says, you were formerly at an ashram run by your current guru in Sri Lanka, what's now Sri Lanka, and you were a senior monk. You were the guy in charge of the ashram. And you were a spiritual holy man, never did anything majorly wrong. However, so I'm waiting for that however, right? He said you had a stray thought. A thought? Because, yeah, there was a married woman that you thought was beautiful and you kind of fell in love with her, but we're never going to do anything about it. Never said a word about it. Only had that fleeting thought. And your guru picked up on that thought, cursed your mind, kicked you out of the ashram. I go, wait a minute, my worst sin was a thought? Wow, that's harsh. Thought? <laughs> thought? <laughs> well, you had a vow of chastity. You had this thought, right? I said, okay, don't need the details. I had a thought. And then you wandered aimlessly for a period of time they couldn't determine until the last image you're picking up from that life where I'm bathed in the Ganges River. I go underwater. And when I come up, there's this blazing light. And there's Lord Shiva. And I'm taken away in a rainbow body. Mm. And that was my last last moment of life on earth. And then the guy goes, and according to this chart, we've gone back to 10 lifetimes, and you ended every lifetime leaving a rainbow body. So this is the rainbow body that ties back to the experience you had in your 20s. You got it. So all kind of ties together, right? Wow. wow. So you left the rainbow. And I said, really? I said, okay, well, it's a beautiful, that part's a beautiful story. And if it's true, that's beautiful. But if it's, if it's just fake, I can't prove it if it's real or not. And so I don't go around telling people, uh, I mean, I'm this great being. You can't. Either people got to love or hate you for who you are right now, because that's who you are right now. Yeah. Right? You can't sell people, well, I was, you know, whatever. Doesn't mean anything. Who you are now. I think there's a validation in that story, as I said, because the rainbow experience you had before, I think that that does validate that. But I, I, I really appreciate you telling that. And it's interesting because just this past week, I've been dealing with a, I will call her, her a cynic as opposed to a skeptic. Because you're a skeptic. I mean, you're telling me how you yeah, would in this yeah. reading. You did not go in and spill your guts and you were looking for cold readings and yeah. you were looking for, you know, the mentalist tricks. Um, but, you know, you're convinced by this. And, you know, and this person I've been dealing with is like, and I, I work with a lot of mediums. And they're like, well, they can look things up on social media. So they could have done this or they could have done that without any proof whatsoever. Um, but these are things that someone writing thousands of years ago or hundreds of years or, or hundred years ago 
could not possibly know about you Nothing. that someone tells you as you go into this place. So to me, it just shows me that there are things in this universe that we don't understand. And we don't know how this is possible because with our conventional scientific Western mind of cause and effect and materialism, this is impossible. This couldn't happen, but it did. And then he went through, and they thought, they, they looks at me and he goes, I hear something to verify that lifetime. He says, think now, what's the first thing that happened to you when you met the guru? Well, I met him in Berkeley. And uh, he invited me into a private meeting with him. He didn't, you know, I'm just a guy, right? And within half hour, we had a great conversation. He goes, he gives a public lecture. In the middle of a public lecture, he stands up from all these people and he looks out at me and he goes, I'm sending healing energy for the brain, not world peace, cancer, for the brain, right? And I'm kind of getting dizzy. I went to that meeting, have suffered that year with 230 or 40 uh, uh, seizures, epileptic seizures. Mm. Doctors told me just days before that at the rate I was having seizures, they were going to kill me. But if I had another seizure or two, it probably could kill me because I was collapsing and everything else. It was just really bad. So I'm there. It was August 16th, I believe. August 16th, 17th, 18th, right around there in Berkeley of all places. That was uh, 11, 11 years ago. 2008, okay. No seizure since then. Mm-hmm. I was at one or two a day. Mm-hmm. All right. And the guy says, and so I, I offered that to the guy because he says, because I told him that was the first thing that happened. He says, yes. And who put a curse on your mind back in that lifetime, on your brain, your guru? And he says, the curse wasn't for any other reason but to be able to verify this now. It's not like, it, you know, your curse, you know, it's the way. It's just, it was all part of the divine play. Right, right. And uh, so then he proceeds to go down what is the interesting part, which is the future, which we could talk about another time. But all all the future stuff, which was going to that temple and meeting the rishis, Mm -hmm. 95 or 98% of it's all happened. My list is very small, very small. That's left. So um, I think I'm burning the candle down low now. There's not much left on there. So some people get these things done and nothing happens because there's free will. Free will. And the guy told me when he's told me, he says, in your particular case, yours is carved in stone for some reason. You know, we're going to tell you things, you know, like you're, when you're going to die and all this stuff. We're going to tell you stuff. But only your God and only God and guru can change it. Hmm. Other people, if they get foreknowledge about an illness or something, well, they change their diet, they do this, they, they, they change their way of you know, relationships, they change things. Just hmm. by virtue of them knowing what the future is, they're exercising their free will to change it. Interesting. And, and then I said, well, about my free will? They said, well, your free will was used to get to this point. Yeah. This is what you created before you were born. Yeah. You are exercising your free will. Right, that you already planned. <laughs> That's why it's already locked in. This is what you're supposed to do. So anyway, so that was India and beautiful stuff. And I wish someday, if I go back and you want to go with me, it could be a good trip. I could take you to one of these places. You might Sounds find it. Wonderful. Sounds wonderful. Well, I um, we're, we're we're going about an hour and a half. I want to um, make sure everybody listens to the whole thing. So I, we'll have to end. I could talk to you all day long. I definitely would love to do this again. 
before we go, I'd like you to talk about your books. Oh, um, just so I have a little blatant commercialism. I, I always forget it. But uh, this is my alchemy of a, of a warrior's heart. And that mm -hmm. deals with four long trips, three, four months at a time to India in the last decade that I wrote the book. Uh, two near-death experiences, meeting gurus, miracles. I mean miracles. Really some really mystical things. And then, that's, that's your period of life between 50 and 60? or I can't remember what decade it was. 60s. 60s, okay. And then this book is my autobiography, Warrior, a Spiritual Odyssey. Mm -hmm. That deals with birth, uh, Vietnam, through later life. Ends up in Machu Picchu where I have a heart attack. I have a heart attack everywhere. I've had heart attacks in Machu Picchu. I've had it in Peru, Bolivia. Uh, Vietnam had a heart attack. Uh, India had a heart attack. Germany had a heart attack. Uh, Mexico, I've had a heart You name it, I've had heart attacks everywhere. But anyway, that's my autobiography. They're both available on Amazon and all uh, online bookstores. Mm -hmm. And I use the funds from that to fund my Spiritual Warriors Ministries. And I plow everything back into that. I fund it myself. And, of course, people buying my books are funded. They just don't know it. Yeah. I'm working with veterans, homeless, those incarcerated, those with PTSD. And uh, it's, a, it's a group that's been kind of neglected. And so I found that, you know, I, I'm working out there with all these new age groups. They got enough new agers to help new agers. The vets need help. There's yeah. no giving them my message. My message is a little different. So that's where I'm at. And, and I thank you for all the work that you've been doing since I got an opportunity to do so. Thank you very much. And thank you for allowing me to speak uh, on your show. Yeah. And I want to uh, talk about your website. It's revbillmcdonald.com. So it's R-E-V-B-I-L-L. McDonald is M-C-D-O-N-A-L-D. And all this will be in the show notes. Again, I want to thank you for doing this. Uh, it's, it's been a true honor, you know, having, having this conversation with you again. I hope we can have more. All right. Blessings and peace to you, my friend. Same to you. Well, that's it for another episode of Grief to Growth. This is your host, Brian Smith. Reach out to me anytime at grieftogrowth.com. That's G-R-I-E-F, the number two, growth.com. I look forward to hearing from you, and I'll be back with you with another podcast soon. Hey there, if you like this episode, come on over and talk about it. Let me know what you liked. If you didn't like this episode, come on over and talk about it. Let me know what you didn't like. Go to grieftogrowth.com slash community and look for talk about the podcast. I'll see you there.